Good morning. I don't know, Matthias said he rolled his sleeves up, but I'm still a little chilly. It's a beautiful day. Um, please turn with me to Acts 23 and follow along, either in your Bibles or on your phone. This morning I want to talk about um, this emotionally charged chain of events in Paul's life to see the way Jesus provides encouragement for Paul to meet the task of witnessing to the gospel in the face of adversity. But before we dive into the text, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful day, for fresh air and sunshine, and for the chance to worship together in the open air with your people. I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would clear away any distractions, that you would open ears to hear your word, and that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's review where we are in the story so far. Leading up to this moment, Paul has been at the center of riots in Jerusalem. As Pastor Nate spoke about last week, Paul has been falsely accused of desecrating the temple, and then he was subsequently beaten by the Jews. Then he was arrested and nearly flogged by the Roman soldiers, which was a punishment that could have ended in his death. Now, the Roman commander is putting Paul on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council with the hopes that he will be able to get a clear understanding of the charges that are being brought against Paul. Paul opens his defense by identifying the members of the Sanhedrin as his brothers, and he courageously assures them of his good conscience before God. But immediately, he runs into trouble. This simple statement of Paul's good conscience so enrages the high priest that he orders Paul to be struck across the face. Why was Paul's opening statement so inflammatory? Well, in claiming to have a good conscience before God up to the present day, Paul was also making an implicit claim about his Christian faith, that he, as a believer in Jesus, still remained a faithful Jew. This courageous claim did not sit well with unbelieving Jews. However, in ordering Paul to be struck, the high priest was violating the law that he was supposed to uphold. The Jewish law considered it a miscarriage of justice to strike someone who had not even been convicted of wrongdoing. And at this point, Paul had not been formally charged, let alone convicted. After being struck, Paul fires back. He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now Paul came in hot here. While he rightly spoke against injustice on the high priest's part, he also openly insulted the high priest, and the people around him are shocked by this. So when he's confronted with his error, Paul claims that he was unaware that Ananias was the high priest. Maybe this was a sarcastic jab, or maybe it was genuine, but either way, Paul shows humility and expresses that his retort did not exhibit the respect due to one who had been granted authority by God. So now, Paul has to resume his defense. He's only gotten one sentence out so far, and he has already been slapped in the face, so he kind of rethinks his strategy. Knowing that some of the members of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees and some were Sadducees, Paul identifies himself as a Pharisee. Note the continuity here. Despite his conversion, 
Paul continues to identify as a Pharisee. His faith in Jesus as the Messiah did not negate his former faith, but fulfilled it. And he was not afraid to make this claim. So, Paul cuts straight to the point. The reason I'm on trial is because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, he says boldly. But resurrection was a key divisive issue between these two parties, as Luke tells us. The Sadducees were anti-supernaturalists who denied the possibility of resurrection or the immortality of the soul. The Pharisees, on the other hand, affirmed the hope of the resurrection at the end of the age. So when Paul shouts resurrection in this setting, he is introducing a fundamental ideological difference between the two parties. Some scholars see this as nothing more than a shrewd diversionary tactic by Paul. He looks around, sizes up the room, and tries to figure out how he's gonna get out of this situation alive. But to make a claim like this in a hostile room did take a, a lot of courage on Paul's part. Let's appreciate his boldness to stand up for his faith. Remember that Paul went to Jerusalem prepared to die. Just a few chapters ago, Luke notes that Paul was warned in every city along the way that prison and hardships lay ahead of him in Jerusalem. Paul's response to these warnings in Acts 20 verse 24 was, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So this is the moment of truth, and Paul had not walked into it blindly. So rather than simply trying to divide his enemies, I think Paul knew that he was short on time, and he courageously decided to cut straight to the heart of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection. We know, of course, that resurrection is an essential part of the gospel message. And we know that the resurrection of Jesus held prime of place in Paul's theology. We see Paul's most extended and pointed discussion of this in 1 Corinthians 15, where he writes, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So when Paul claims resurrection, it's not just a ploy to take the attention off of himself and onto an external argument. He continues in 1 Corinthians, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the historic hope of Israel, shared by the Pharisees in the room. Paul's bold claim is that this hope has been inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It might be hard for us to grasp how explosive this was for Paul's audience, because our culture is so quick to relativize truth claims. Perhaps a similarly controversial claim for us today would be the assertion that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are all in need of salvation, and that Jesus alone can provide it. There are certainly some contexts in our culture where an absolute truth claim like that would provoke an argument. Paul's courage 
to make a controversial claim to his audience sent the Sanhedrin into an uproar. And it became so violent that the Roman commander was afraid for Paul's life. He orders his troops to go in and rescue Paul before he is torn apart, and the soldiers bring him into protective custody in the Antonia Fortress. At this point, Paul is alone in prison. His hopes of ministering to his fellow Jews in Jerusalem have ended in chaos and violence, and his hopes of someday going to minister in Rome don't look very promising either. He has been beaten and bruised, and there is a good chance that he will not get out of this situation alive. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly how Paul was feeling, but we can probably speculate that he might have been facing discouragement, fear, anxiety, and deep, deep disappointment. These are feelings we can all relate to. Think about a time when you have felt trapped or hopeless or afraid. How did Jesus meet you in that moment? What gave you the courage to keep going? Jesus knew that Paul needed divine encouragement. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has appeared to Paul since his conversion. When he was facing challenges to his ministry in Corinth, Jesus came to Paul in a vision to encourage him. In this instance, Jesus says to Paul, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul also recounts an instance shortly after his conversion when he was praying in the temple and he fell into a trance. Jesus came to him in this state and warned him to leave Jerusalem to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Notice how in both of these previous encounters, Jesus had comforted Paul, directed his ministry, and guarded his safety for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. Here in prison, Paul's encounter is similar, but it's somewhat different. He still receives comfort, direction, and the promise of safety for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. But rather than receiving these through a vision or a trance, Luke tells us that Jesus came and stood by Paul. He stood by him. There's nothing illusory about this experience. The presence of Jesus was palpable for Paul. Have you ever felt that? Where you know without a doubt that you are not alone in the darkness. You are not alone in your troubles because the presence of the Lord is with you. It's so powerful. When he comes to Paul in prison, Jesus greets Paul with a single word in Greek that we typically translate into English as take courage or take heart. A fuller definition of this word is to be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. This is not a term that dismisses the gravity of troubles, but it's a call to have courage in spite of danger because of the presence of Christ. This is a really special word. It only shows up a handful of times in the New Testament, and in every instance but one, it is uttered by Jesus himself and it is accompanied by tender compassion and reassurance. To the paralytic who was lowered through the roof by his friends, Jesus says, take courage, child. Your sins are forgiven. To the woman who had suffered constant bleeding for 12 years, who reached out in faith to touch Jesus' clothing, 
he turns and says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has saved you. When the disciples were being tossed about in a boat during a fierce storm and they were terrified, Jesus walks across the water to them and he says to them, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. And on the night before his betrayal, when he was preparing his disciples for his crucifixion and all that would follow, Jesus told them, in this world, you will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This call to be courageous is something we see all throughout scripture. Think of Joshua and all he was up against when we stepped into leadership over the Israelites. In Joshua 1, God repeats the phrase, be strong and courageous, no less than three times, as he commissions Joshua for the task ahead. And in Joshua 1.9, he adds, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. We can also consider Jeremiah, who expressed doubt when God called him to be a prophet. When Jeremiah protests that he is too young for this task, God reassures him, you must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you. As God's people, we are not to be enslaved to fear. As Paul later writes to Timothy, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. But God knows our human weaknesses, and he graciously provides divine encouragement to bolster his children in moments of doubt or anxiety. Some of you may know that this is the first time that I have ever preached. I finished a master's degree in theology last May, so I have quite a bit of experience doing research and writing, but I have never translated that skill into the practice of preaching. And in case you didn't know, writing a research paper is pretty different from writing a sermon. And on top of that, there are a lot of you who have more ministry experience who are trained teachers and preachers, and who have had a longer walk with the Lord than I have at this point in my life. I had several moments where I was preparing this message this weekend, um, and I felt unqualified and doubtful about whether I could do this or whether it would be of any value to anyone if I did. But God providentially saw fit for this week's passage to be centered on a divine encounter in which God provided Paul with the courage that he needed to testify to the truth of the gospel. God also knew exactly what I needed, and he ordained for me to sit with this passage and dwell on it and study it before bringing me up here. And if Paul can face possible death and still speak with boldness, then I can stand here for 20 minutes and talk to you and pray that uh, God would work through my research to encourage the church. This is something that we can be sure of. When God calls his people to a task, he also promises his presence and he provides what we need. God's presence with us through the power of the Holy Spirit is our source of courage in hardship and our source of boldness when we are called to witness. I'm gonna say that again. God's presence with us through the power of the Holy Spirit is our source of courage in hardship and our source of boldness when we are called to witness. 
So after greeting Paul with this call to take courage, Jesus reassures Paul that he will go on to testify in Rome, just as he testified in Jerusalem. But if his time in Jerusalem has been any example, Paul cannot expect an easy road ahead. But he is strengthened by Jesus' presence and reassured that God is not finished with him yet. If we think back over the entire narrative of Acts so far, it's clear that this theme of witness drives the plot. The book is about the spread of the gospel as the disciples witness to Jesus' death and resurrection. This is immensely relevant for the church today. Walt Russell claims that it is in the book of Acts that we can find a definitive and bold statement of our purpose in the world. We are to be about proclaiming the good news of the crucified and resurrected Messiah Jesus to all the peoples of the world. Our culture is often so individualistic and sometimes we get caught up in trying to discern our individual vocation. What has God called me to do? It's great to identify our God-given gifts and to use them to serve God's kingdom. But we should always keep in mind this call to witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That is our primary call as God's people. And it's binding for each one of us no matter where God places us. We can take comfort as we look at the book of Acts and we see how the Holy Spirit consistently equips his people and empowers them for this work. So this is what I want you all to remember today as we reflect on Paul's circumstances in Acts 23. First, the source of our courage is the assurance of God's presence. The source of our courage is the assurance of God's presence. God is always with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And at moments of special need, he provides encouragement and reassurance. This may not be through a vision or an audible voice as it was for Paul, but don't forget that God always speaks to us through his word. There we can find strength and grow in boldness. Second, our primary call as God's people is to witness to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul never lost sight of this calling, even in the face of adversity and personal danger. This is a calling we can live out in every sphere of life, as every circumstance, every circumstance, is a God-ordained opportunity to witness to our faith. Now this might mean preaching or giving a public testimony if you're called upon to do that, but don't dismiss the significance of the power of courageous witness in everyday life. Where has God called you to witness? Maybe it's in the workplace or at school. Maybe it's to your neighbors or your friends. Maybe it's to your young children as you raise them or to your parents or other family members. Whatever circle God has placed you in, you can testify about Jesus. God may even use you in seemingly random or insignificant encounters with people you don't even know. I'll never forget one interaction I had at a conference for workers' rights when I was in college. There was this really imposing, intimidating man. He was very tall. I'm not. He had long, dark hair, and he had a, a constant scowl on his face. And he was talking to me about his worldview. He was an atheist. And he said that what motivated him was hate. 
He hated that there were people out there who were mistreated in poor and dangerous working conditions and who did not earn a living wage, and that anger fueled him to work for change. When he turned the question around to ask me what my motivation was for caring about these issues, I was super intimidated. He was kind of scary. I figured he would see me as foolish and idealistic, but God gave me the courage in that moment to witness to my faith, despite the possibility of receiving ridicule. I never saw this guy again. I don't know if he remembers this encounter, and I have no idea how God might have used that in his life, but God put him in my path that day, and he gave me a brief opportunity, and God was faithful to encourage me and provide the strength I needed. You might meet someone at a grocery store or at a restaurant or at your kid's soccer game or sitting next to you in class or public transportation or anywhere, anywhere you go, who needs to hear about God's love and the hope of the resurrection. Scripture tells us that we should always be prepared to give a reason for our hope. But that isn't always easy. What areas do you need God's presence to strengthen your courage? Do you need courage to witness boldly in a particular place or in a specific relationship? Maybe you need courage to articulate your faith despite possible adverse reactions. Are you struggling with doubt, discouragement, or depression? Maybe you need courage to seek help or just to face another day and hold on to hope. If you are not a believer, maybe you need the courage to accept God's offer of salvation. Whatever it is, I pray that you would be built up by the assurance of your Savior's nearness. Hear the voice of Jesus saying, take courage, child. Our passage today ends with the account of a conspiracy against Paul's life as a result of his courageous witness, which Wendy so wonderfully told the kids about. I don't have time for all the details this morning, but you got a lot of them, so I'm really happy about that. Um, but God ordains a series of details that will safely remove Paul from immediate danger in Jerusalem and bring him closer to courageously testifying in Rome. Because he had been assured of God's presence, Paul had the courage to witness wherever God led him. As we leave today, remember that God will providentially act to ensure the proclamation of the gospel. No matter the challenges we face, nothing can thwart God's purposes to make himself known through his people. As we look to him for courage, we can trust that he will protect and preserve us for the sake of witnessing where he has called us. Amen. <laughs>